Welcome to the SLU Podcast, where capital and innovation meet the Permian Basin. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell, SVP of the Americas for Oil and Gas Council and advisor to the SLU Enterprise. Today we are joined by Joe Quayaser, SVP of EMP Industry Affairs at the SLU Enterprise. During the episode, Joe walks through his recent experience with building the Permian Strategic Partnership with McKinsey and how the SLU team is looking to execute a similar collaborative effort amongst EMPs in order to help launch the SLU marketplace and unlock capital for future development in the Permian Basin. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Joe has to say. Joe, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the time to do this. How are you? I'm good, Tim. Thanks. How are you? I'm excellent. Listen, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a really good chat here and learning about uh, your involvement with the SOU Enterprise. Uh, before doing that, I think it'll be important to paint a picture of your skill set and your career and how you fit into the SOU team. So uh, before we jump into the media discussion, we'd love to go down memory lane with you and, you know, go back to the beginning of your career with Exxon. It, I think, you know, when we've chatted before, you said your career started in Midland and it circled back to Midland and there was a bunch of stuff in between. So let's go back to the early 80s, a little background on how you got started, how you got in oil and gas, and then we'll take it from there. Sure, well, uh, Tim, oil and gas is kind of the family business. Both of my grandfathers retired from major oil companies, as did my father. So I, I went to college, majored in chemical engineering, and, and was very interested in the oil and gas industry and was lucky enough to uh, be offered a job with Exxon as I was graduating college, and they offered me uh, choice of locations, and I picked Midland because, as you know, it was then and obviously is now, you know, the oil patch. So it was a total immersion experience, and I uh, went to work there in a reservoir engineering position and, uh, you know, actually had surveillance responsibility for assets out in Winkler and Ward County, which are which are some of the hot areas in the, uh, in the Delaware Basin today. Of course, the wells were all vertical back then. And you're right, the, the Permian Basin's kind of been the bookends of my career. I spent three years in Midland with Exxon in the mid 80s and now over the last uh, four years or so of my management consulting career with McKinsey, I was heavily focused on the Permian Basin and then left to join SLU Enterprise on June the 1st as Senior Vice President of ENP Industry Affairs. And as you know, we're trying to uh, scale up a capital markets innovation that's focused on the Permian Basin. Fantastic. Now, you know, you, you had mentioned you start with Exxon, but then you really had, uh, you've been a consultant your whole career. So you started with Booz and Company, then uh, Charles River Associates CRA. Then the last eight years have been with McKinsey. I know downstream in chemicals was uh, a big focus of your consulting career, but you also did quite a bit in upstream. And the reason I want to kind of paint this out and just walk through some of your experience is that you've largely worked with IOCs and majors and large independents your whole career. And when that had upstream relevance, that ties back into what you're doing now with working and, and assembling the, the EMP uh, part of the, the SLU enterprise, right? So just kind of briefly walk through late 80s to 2020 kind of projects you've worked on, your main focus and what your expertise personally started to gravitate towards over the years. Yeah, I, I think that um, maybe it's kind of think about three phases. I, you know, there was an oil price crash in 1986, a very acute one. And um, that really slowed down just not just mine, but everybody's career progression at Exxon. So I, I elected to leave there in 87 and, and go take an MBA. And as you said, I, I joined Booz and Company and, and, and ended up having, you know, spending 31 years in management consulting. Um, at Booz and at CRA, um, heavy focus on 
on major oil companies. And it was a real time of kind of retrenchment and consolidation, a lot of competition, low margins in the upstream business, low margin in the downstream business. And, and you might say that the, the kind of the first wave of that uh, kind of ended around the late, two, uh, late 90s, early 2000s with a range of super major uh, consolidation transactions. You know, BP and Amico and Arco, Exxon and Mobil, uh, Conoco and Phillips were smaller, but, but, uh, and then Chevron and Texaco. Those basically represented the endpoint of easy resources, and the U.S. was viewed as easy resources, so in, in, in structural decline. So those mergers were really created to position companies to compete in deep water, in oil sands, in LNG, and in tougher environments like Russia and parts of the Middle East. At CRA, you know, I, I was more, I became very growth focused. You know, the middle 2000s started to see rapidly rising natural gas prices and some strengthening in oil prices uh, due to Chinese demand. And so, um, the, you know, there was a, a wave of investment that was starting. Again, it's pre-shale, but uh, I did a lot of work with BP and other companies, um, you know, focused on their tight gas resources, San Juan Basin, you know, Wamsutter, et cetera, but, but especially their deep water projects portfolio, which was significant and, and the locus of a lot of capital spending. And then I joined McKinsey in, in 2012 and, and kind of between 2006 and 2012, you know, something really important happened, which was the increased relevance and, and kind of commercial scale of shale resources. In fact, I like to point at 2005 as kind of the, the birth of the current incarnation of the oil and gas industry because it was, it was a year of peak spending on LNG import terminals, again, because of high prices in the U.S. and the view that North American production was was going to decline forever, but it was also the first year kind of under the radar that more horizontal wells than verticals were drilled in the Permian Basin. So when I joined McKinsey in 2012, I was asked to really focus on on the new U.S. onshore, the shale players, and, and particularly um, work to try and increase our, our impact on independent producers. No, yeah, and, and like you had said, uh, most of the work for large management consultants is with majors, and majors were really absent from the shale game in the first wave there, right? Up until that point, um, you know, they started to back in with larger acquisitions, i.e. Exxon buying XTO, right? And they started to get their chess pieces on the table for lack of better words. But your role coming into McKinsey was to do basin-wide studies and start getting the the large independents and, and the majors and the IOCs kind of up to speed and, and into the shale plays, right? Um, and then also go down market for McKinsey to start working with these independents that had already established positions, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, in that kind of the whole decade of the 2000s, following those big mergers, um, the, the largest companies were shrinking their U.S. onshore oil and gas production, excluding Alaska, at a very rapid place, maybe 10 to 15% per year, reflecting you know, lack of investment, but also active divestment. As, uh, as we talked about 2005 being an inflection point, so then it was a you know, 2008 or 2009 when, when ExxonMobil acquired XTO. And when they did that, a um, couple of thoughts there. One is, you know, that was a reaction to the, to the very sudden emergence of, of North American onshore as the largest accessible resource base in the world from, you know, radical change from what they thought 10 years ago when they'd, uh, when they'd merged with mobile. And secondly, they actually bought back a lot of assets and a lot of people that had previously been Exxon. Um, you know, these example, the senior vice president of reservoir engineering for XTO was in my group at Exxon in the mid 80s. And a lot of the assets that, that Exxon bought from XTO had actually been uh, Exxon assets or Chevron assets 
you know, 10 years earlier. Not only, not only ExxonMobil, but also Chevron, Statoil, and Shell um, among the majors uh, and, and traditional McKinsey clients made significant uh, acquisitions to build uh, land positions in the shale basins across Marcellus, uh, Eagleford, you know, Mid-Continent, and eventually the Permian Basin. At McKinsey, uh, as you said, the traditional client base was, was majors and, and NOCs outside of North America. And uh, my role was to do a couple things. One is to, you know, we got a foot in the door by helping the, ma the aforementioned majors to incorporate um, some of these acquisitions and realign their organizations to return to faster growth in the U.S. onshore. Uh, we also got very interested operationally in what, what is it that comprise best practices, uh, particularly from drilling completion standpoint, because that's where most of the costs were. And so we did a, a benchmarking study uh, most notably in Marcellus. And we we're fortunate enough to gain both uh, majors and independents in that, in that benchmarking study. And I personally became quite captivated with the, uh, the organization structure and leadership model that characterized single basin and multi-basin independence. And in talking with my colleagues at McKinsey, really believed we needed to focus on, on client development efforts in that sector in order to be to assure our relevance because of, of the substantial leadership positions that independents tended to have in all the shale basins. So we, uh, we had to build awareness and, and I led a lot of that effort through conference work and also direct outreach to, uh, to EMP CEOs. Now let's fast forward to uh, 2017 um, and talk about Permian Strategic Partnership or PSP as it's known to those um, familiar with the Permian. Now this is where I think your direct experience ties into the SOU very conveniently, right? So give a little background on the PSP, the call you got in early 2017, do a study with McKinsey and and then we'll kind of walk through the evolution of that and then tie it to the SOU afterwards. You know, we had, we had done some initial uh, client development work with Pioneer in 2015 and 16. It hadn't had led to any uh, any direct work with them, but it but in 2017, um, Pioneer took the lead in incubating something that would become the Permian Strategic Partnership. And uh, you know, Tim Dove was their chief executive at the time. Uh, he had he had started his career uh, with then Parker and Parsley in Midland, and in you know right before then, Pioneer had refocused their strategy to be a, per, a Permian pure play. Pioneer and many other companies were going to make the Permian the centerpiece of their growth strategy. And the Permian had real challenges in terms of workforce development, roads and road safety, education and healthcare, in terms of their ability to, to attract uh, workforce of, of all kinds. And then Tim reached out to a couple of other leaders, uh, Concho and, and Jeff Schellebarger of Chevron, and they agreed to work together to try to um, forge a solution. And McKinsey was well positioned because uh, you know we knew Tim well, we knew Chevron well, and uh, Schellebarger at the time was chairman of the Greater Houston Partnership, and McKinsey had, had done a lot of work at the Greater Houston Partnership. The, the CEO of the Greater Houston Partnership is, is a former McKinsey partner. And they, they viewed uh, GHP as, as kind of a, uh, a benchmark of sorts. And so they asked McKinsey if we'd be willing to get involved and help uh, coordinate you know, the, the involvement of, of a number of Permian companies to, to help forge an agenda and then design uh, whatever organization. There was a hypothesis that there'd be a new organization created and, and they wanted some help designing it, you know, kind of establishing the mission, kind of scoping and scaling that. So Tim and, and, and those other two uh, leaders recruited five other E&P companies, Apache, Anadarko, EOG, 
Oxy and ExxonMobil, as well as uh, Halliburton and Schlumberger to come in on the ground floor. And McKinsey did a two month effort, really a gap analysis, opportunity identification and interim governance design. Uh, at the end of those two months, the, the, the leaders of those 10 companies you know, stacked hands and said, we're going to do something. We're going to stand up an organization. We're going to fund its GNA, and we as companies are going to commit to invest in public-private partnerships in those aforementioned priority areas. Uh, then, in the summer of, of 2017, uh, they they wanted to expand the group, and they've ultimately since added um, 11 more companies. They've lost one when Anadarko was acquired by Oxy, and a couple of others are, are probably going to disappear if uh, if currently proposed uh, M&A transactions close. But uh, McKinsey was able, and I personally was able to play, play a role in, in outreach to a number of those companies by sharing uh, the initial work that had been done. So when you put it all together, yeah, it was a great uh, preparation for what I'm doing with the SLU on a few dimensions. One is, you know, getting real current in the kind of fundamentals, because one of the things we did as part of the strategy was model out the basin to 2030, build a really robust model of activity, workforce, road traffic, et cetera. Um, secondly, I uh, was able to build uh, really strong personal relationships with leaders in many of those 20 companies who are also um, the target customers for what we're trying to build with SLU, and then also with affiliated entities such as uh, Don Evans, who's the chairman of the Permian Strategic Partnership. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I remember, so I just happened to meet Stefan in beginning of 2019, January 2019, when he was really starting to build out the SLU concept. And I remember him calling me, I want to say it was March 2019. He said, hey, Tim, I need a management consultant to do a study on the SLU and we need to bring some third-party credibility to it. Do you know anyone? I said, well, I know this guy, Joe Quiaser at McKinsey, and he always comes to our Permian stuff. He's a very good client. Let me put you in touch. And, you know, Stefan, after talking to you, said, oh, wait a second. You're the guy who was involved with the PSP. We need to do the same thing within the SLU. And that, you know, internally at the SLU enterprise is referred to as the SLU club or the SLU council. So I think it's really interesting. It's um, kind of like the GHP that you guys used as a benchmark. The PSP can be used as a benchmark in ways for what you guys are looking to build. So why don't you expand upon that? I mean, one of your primary roles, right? Leveraging those relationships that you built with a lot of the CEOs that are running large independents and then just the structure and the framework and just knowing how the pieces fit together to get the momentum to get this thing going to try to replicate that uh, for the SLU. Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. It's a it's a collective action problem. You know, when you think about that means what I mean by that is that uh, there's more benefit the more companies that participate, but you sort of have to sign the companies up one at a time on the promise that something's going to be there. With the PSP, I think that ultimately the companies joined because that scale gave them more effectiveness in executing their pre-existing strategies. You know, each of those companies had a public and government affairs strategy, but but by coordinating it, um, the, the force multiplication is is really powerful. Now, what we're doing with with SLU is is somewhat more commercial. I mean, we're focused on assets and balance sheet more so than we're focused on communities and and local governments and school districts and the like. But the same principle applies. If we can if we can get SLU scaled and operational, it adds a new club to each company's bag and allows them to execute their own strategies, regardless of whether it's a, a gr- aggressive growth strategy, a consolidation strategy, organic only, harvest, you know, maintenance, whatever it is, it'll be better served the, the larger 
uh, the SLU gets to be. So the difference is that PSP originated from within the industry and then McKinsey was brought in to help. Whereas SLU, we're kind of originating you know, tangential to the independent or, or the MP sector itself. And we're trying to you know, incubate, the, you know, put the idea into people's heads and create the demand for it. Now, what's, what's, what's fortunate is I think the, the timing really couldn't be better. I think that there's a sea change underway. Well, it's already, it's already passed, really, with, uh, with active equity investors essentially renouncing uh, the independent EMP space. And so what we're, we're in the midst of now is a set of transactions that are explicitly designed to create dividend growth companies. SLU is a, is a, can be a really vital and valuable tool to help companies transform themselves into dividend growth companies because we afford a much more flexible and efficient asset monetization and valuation mechanism than exists anywhere in the basin today. So the, the timing is right in our early outreach has been extremely rewarding because companies realize that what we're proposing is exactly what the industry needs right now. And so the, the sale, I won't say the sale's easy, but the concept is already sold. And, and what people pivot to immediately are things like mechanics and transition, which are questions that our team's done a lot of time thinking about. Uh, absolutely. And let's kind of peel back uh, on a couple of those comments and just expand upon them. So one, you know, you said the PSP and the SLU market are collective strategies, but are to the benefit of everybody, right? And it, regardless of what your company's plans are, it's, it's a net positive. So to get involved makes sense. Now, what, what, what do you mean by collective strategy? So we'll just explain to everyone who's listening, just in case they're not intimately familiar. So the SLU market, essentially the SLU itself, standing for a super location unit, is going to represent a new asset class for Permian Basin Reserves. And the collective strategy, the market we're referring to, is going to be a, a supply and demand on these SLUs. And what's key and where you come in, Joe, is you're trying to get enough EMP companies to buy into the concept so that they can self-identify uh, SLUs within their portfolio and then contribute them to the market so that there's supply. And then you bake in uh, the trading and financial instruments that go on top of that, uh, then that helps unlock liquidity. And the end goal, the net result, why everyone's motivated to create and participate in an SLU market is that enables them to take inventory in their balance sheet that's currently getting little to no value and is basically stuck. You can get some liquidity on that, some option value on it, and you can redirect those dollars back into your, your core acres that you want to drill and that, that helps uh, increase production, cash flow, et cetera. And that enables you to increase dividends and, and transition to a dividend growth model, as you're saying, right? So just wanted to take a, a, a minute to explain all that. I don't think we need to get in all the weeds on the financial mechanisms and the trading aspect, because we do that in, in other episodes with the other SLU members. But, you know, perhaps maybe we can talk a, a little bit more about what an SLU is, Joe, uh, you know, just the actual definition and the conversations you've had with other EMP companies and some of the things that make sense right away, maybe some of the concerns or hurdles. Uh, I think if, if you're the executive of an EMP company listening to this, why don't we put ourselves in their shoes and, you know, help them up the learning curve a little bit? Because this is what you've been in the weeds are day in, day out with Adam, right? Yeah. So I think that, um, I think we start from a assumption that the modal position of a Permian EMP company is that they're long on acreage assets or inventory, as it's called, 
and short on the cash required both to develop that inventory as well as to pay dividends and, um, and in many cases pay down debt uh, to achieve a, a more sustainable uh, leverage position. So what the SLU affords to a, um, an E&P company is a very flexible and scalable tool to both realize value in terms of price discovery, as well as to selectively monetize, which is i.e. to, to trade uh, acreage inventory of, of different varieties, whether it's stuff you're gonna drill or not drill or slices of it uh, for cash. The mechanics are at the highest level are fairly straightforward. As you said, SLU stands for super location unit, which we define as 1,280 acres, two square miles or two regularly shaped uh, sections. I would characterize that as the minimum efficient scale of an asset level transaction uh, because at, at two square miles, you enable 10,000 foot uh, laterals, which is, you know, there, there are a few that are longer than that, but, but the vast majority of horizontal wells drilled are going to be in the 8,000 to 10,000 um, foot of, of horizontal length. So that's minimum efficient scale. The, the SLU is, is, is envisioned to be a security on that two mile scale that has title to all the cash flows um, that, that emerge from the both the, the cash ingestion to fund the DNC, as well as the, the distributions from the resulting production, uh, less the lease operating expense. The mechanics are that um, an operator, and if, if relevant, other non-operating working interest owners who own interests in those 1,280 acres will execute a standardized JOA. And that's one of the common themes, I think, in all these conversations is standardization. I'll come back to that in a second, but a standardized joint operating agreement that replaces whatever legacy joint operating agreements are there. The operator then issues a development plan. In, in many cases, he already has a development plan. But what's different for us is, is even for things that aren't planned to be drilled next year or the year after, um, we'll ask the operator to, to issue a development plan that indicates how many wells he plans to drill by bench and, and when he plans to start development. Then uh, the critical step is that uh, our friends at Ryder Scott will assign a rating um, to that 1,280 acres in that development plan. They'll offer an opinion about the quantity of technically recoverable resource that's contained in that 1,280 and how much of that's mobilized by the wells that are included in the development plan. And they'll also issue an opinion on the, on the quality and commerciality of the resource, which really will allow a, an investor to develop a view of what the development economics of that 1,280 acres will look like at, at any particular oil price um, premise. Obviously, oil price is, a, is an irreducible uncertainty in this industry. So uh, Ryder Scott issues the rating. The rating is kind of analogous, we hope, to, to what bond ratings from Moody's and S&P are um, in the fixed income markets, that they will allow generalist investors to assemble diversified portfolios of rated assets without having to do an enormous amount of deal-specific due diligence. So if you think about it, if you were a portfolio manager at, say, Harvard University on the fixed income side, you could buy AA bonds from you know, Walmart or ExxonMobil or, or Caterpillar, and you wouldn't have to do a tremendous amount of due diligence. You would, you would trust the ratings agency. You know the ratings aren't necessarily perfectly precise, but if the errors are small and normally distributed, then your returns are predictable. And similarly, we envision investors wanting to assemble diversified portfolios of fractional interests in these 1,280-acre super locations all across the Permian Basin. And the diversification could be by operator, by county, by geologic formation, and also by year of the commencement of the development plan. And that's really 
the coming back to the notion of the collective action problem, where the benefits come for the whole ecosystem for getting more E&P companies involved, because the more companies are involved, the greater the level of diversification in the portfolios that can be created, which means the, the greater the interest, the number and the capital commitments of new investors uh, that will, will come in um, through this SLU will be. So, so the more companies we have, the more investors we'll have, the more investors we have, the more competitive pricing we get, the, the better chance for, for true value discovery and eventually reflation of depressed equity values among, among oil and gas companies. One other thing, while we're on it, um, talking about investors coming in and injecting capital into the Permian via the SLUs, let's talk about the ESG angle and how that helps unlock new capital. I, you must have had some consulting background around this topic for your clients. It, the headwinds are real in the capital markets. It, it is a catalyst to some of the money leaving the industry, at least short term. But what Stefan's done with TEO and IEO is really what the SLU is looking to replicate. He's gotten pension money from Europe to invest into an isolated vehicle that owns the asset, but doesn't have exposure to the operations. And that's what TEO is. And then IEO operates the assets on behalf of TEO. And so one of the reasons he was able to unlock that capital from these ESG funds in Europe was that they were able to operate the assets in an environmentally friendly way. Now, IEO focuses on mature field assets, but you know, it, from the perspective of an SLU, it's, it's almost a, a clean slate, isn't it? So it, if it's acreage that's being spun out of, call it XTO or Apache or Pioneer, it's not necessarily tied to the performance or the ESG footprint of Pioneer as a company. It's a, it's a clean slate, and if the development plan is executed with environmental standards checked off, then environmentally sensitive capital can come in that's aligned with that development plan. And all of a sudden you unlock all sorts of different types of capital because it's isolated to this SLU unit, not the operating company itself. I found that fascinating and very innovative from a financing structure to tackle the issues at hand. I mean, expand upon that and the reaction yeah. by EMP operators to that, because that provides a very viable solution to a challenge for sure. Yeah. So if we set the stage, what we've got is you, you probably the first level segmentation is investors who are willing to own fossil fuels or not. But even with, and we, we're not, you know, nothing we're doing is going to bring an investor back to fossil fuels who, who's renounced it. But for investors who are, who are staying in fossil fuels, but are seeking to invest in the highest possible level of ESG performance, they have a challenge, which is, I, you could call an installed base challenge, is that, that all E&P companies have a variety of assets. And um, no matter what your metric is, whether it's flaring of gas or methane capture efficiency or trucking water, uh, produced water or consumption of fresh water, there's variation all across the portfolio. Everybody's striving to get better. You know, Oxy, I think with a high, very high profile on this, uh, saying that, you know, not only do they wanna be carbon neutral using their EOR business, but also committing to, to stop all flaring in the Permian Basin or maybe globally by 2030. Other companies in, in the recent mergers are all um, paying great attention to ESG performance and setting targets um, on the backside of these merger integrations. But those are all uh, corporate, you know, cumulative targets. The beauty of the SLU, we talked about minimum efficient scale for securitization. It's also the minimum efficient scale for ESG performance analysis, and particularly on the E side, 
Because whereas um, I think I saw one company's earnings report the other one said they're they're flying two percent of their gas production in the Permian Basin. Well, that two they're not flying two percent from every well pad. What that means is there's there's a whole bunch of well pads flaring zero, and then there's a few that are flaring a hundred percent. So the beauty of the SOU is we can designate those zero flaring entities, label them as such, and let investors say, yes, I want to invest in, I'm willing to invest in oil and gas, but I hate flaring. So I want to only invest in zero flaring. There's not a single company out there today that can say it's a zero flaring company, but there are hundreds of zero flaring 1,280 acre sections. So we believe that by designating some metrics for the environmental performance of a super location entity, and then putting it out in the marketplace, what will happen is we'll see price premiums, maybe very significant price or value premiums placed on highly uh, environmentally compliant 1,280 acre super locations. And that premium will fund and catalyze the rapid improvement, uh, abatement, let's say, of flaring or the abatement of water hauling or the increase in water recycling, you know, we'll we'll let the the market will tell us which of these variables they value the most and what the what the valuation gradients are. But um, it's super exciting because it creates so much transparency at on a micro scale and allows the industry now to play from a position of strength, whereas, uh, you know, play offense, whereas it's always been playing defense on, on these kinds of metrics. No, I agree. It's, it's very exciting. And, and by doing it kind of at the ground level up, at, you know, the SOUs, relatively speaking, are small in comparison to corporates. You can wrap your head around it, right? Like that's a plan of action that can be executed. It's the whole reason why the Permian Basin has taken off and shale in general in the U.S. has taken off more so than Vaca Muerta in Argentina, just to give an example, because it's all massive companies developing massive positions, whereas U.S. shale had tiny private equity-backed teams carving out a couple thousand acres here, five, ten thousand acres there, and they delineated it, proved it up, and drilled and, and flipped. And, and so unlocking innovation at the, the ground floor is a, a recipe for success. And I, I just think that's one of the one of the really powerful things about the SOU concept right now, because it is just such a strong headwind that you can't ignore right now, this ESG challenge in the capital market. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to see that play out for sure. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, just to echo your point, the way the phrase I like to use is that U.S. shale was really a crowdsourced phenomenon when you had lots of companies operating uh, and still in the Permian that you have lots and lots of companies. We've got like more than 20 EMP companies in our target list more than 20 public companies on our target list for, for the SOU. Um, I would go so far as to say, I, I, th- I think we should try and pivot or jujitsu ESG from a headwind into a tailwind. Like I said, if, if investors will pay a premium for high levels of environmental performance, then you know this is a mechanism that can give it to them and create a virtuous circle for accelerating performance improvement. Well, Joe, I think you articulated a lot of things very, very clearly, uh, Thanks for the conversation. I think everyone listening will draw a lot of benefit from it. And uh, I know we'll better wrap their heads around the SLU enterprise and what your team is looking to achieve. So appreciate the time. I'll, I'll hand the floor over to you. Closing comments, just messages to the EMP companies out there and, and the executives running them and the investment community. I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Well, um, thanks, Tim. It's been, I've enjoyed the time with you and I really appreciate the services that you've delivered to us and others uh, through the Oil and Gas Council. I just want to say, uh, kind of just to wrap up, how 
I feel like I'm really in the right place at the right time that uh, everything I've done in my career, uh, both at the beginning and over the last five years has positioned me for this. I've got a tremendous amount of romance for the industry and for the, the Permian Basin region in particular. And uh, I feel blessed to be uh, working with this team right now to uh, to try and scale up what I think is is some very creative you know business development and concept development work that's been done and make it tangible and uh, and ultimately a, a vital part of the of the corporate strategies of, of these companies that I, I uh, respect so much well thanks again Joe have a great afternoon and uh, we'll talk soon thank you hey guys thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast I hope you enjoyed The SLU Enterprise is striving to standardize, commoditize, and monetize oil and gas reserves in the Permian Basin. If you're interested in learning more and how your team can participate in the SLU marketplace, then please email Joe Quieser, SVP of EMP Industry Affairs, at jquoyeser at sluenterprise.com. Thanks, and see you next time.